My uh, son in America made me climb a mountain. And Christine was encouraging the activity, saying, it'll be a good father-son bonding experience. Now, the mountain he chose was Mount Washington, highest peak on the eastern seaboard in America, has the highest measured wind velocity, and also a few people have died climbing to the top. (laughs) When we did this, it was lightly covered in snow and ice, below zero in temperature, Uh, I should add that my son's hobby is actually mountain climbing, so um, I had a little bit of security. So we set off on one November morning, very cold. By the time we got to the base of the mountain, it was around 8 o'clock in the morning. So Johnny supplied me with uh, boots with spikes, warm coat, thick gloves, pointed walking poles to keep me upright. Then about halfway up, he gave me warmer gloves, warmer coat and so on because the temperature kept falling. After six hours of climbing, we reached the top. And the last two to 300 metres was tramping through snow up to my knee. But I made it to the peak. The climb called me to persevere or die on the mountain. So what kept me going? Well, it was really my son's encouragement. He kept on saying, you can do it, Dad, you can do it. I kept reminding him, I'm 30 years older than you. Um, But he said, you can keep doing it. And then he'd say, isn't the view terrific? That's just Canada over there. You can see it, can't you? And of course, he had to have a healthy dose of patience with my slow pace and my very hesitant jumping over crevasses. Um, But of course, the delight on his face as I kept completing each section of the climb was really a great delight. So the climb achieved what Christine had suggested. Our relationship grew stronger through the experience and, of course, it makes a great story to retell. And if you want to find out more of the details, let me know and I can tell you about the sore knee that I still have. Um, but it, it's great to have encouragement in all of our life, isn't it, in various aspects, but especially in our Christian life. And today's passage picks up that theme of encouragement to persevere, to press on, to keep going. And as you listen to it, you would have heard how it begins and ends on that theme. So verse 1, let us run with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. Well, verse 13, even though it doesn't use the word persevere, it's the sense of it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and so on. So as the passage begins, it's calling us for a committed perseverance. This opening verse of chapter 12 is telling us to persevere, to press on, to run the race. To run it also in an unhindered and unentangled way as well. So let me read verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And again, it's another big therefore that starts the passage, isn't it? Its function is to link us back into chapter 11 because what he's saying now flows out of it. Remember the chapter divisions weren't there in the original. They're just put in to make it easier for us after the printing was developed. So we mustn't think that a big number suddenly says, well, we forget about what we've just read. It really flows out of it. So... Chapter 11, remember, 
leads into this call to persevere in chapter 12. Chapter 11 outlined the persevering faith of Old Testament saints. It gave us a shape of persevering faith, provided a wide range of examples, didn't it? It mentioned, remember, what are some of the people that mentioned in chapter 11? Abraham, that was a, put it as a big model, wasn't it? Who else was mentioned? Moses, Moses yep. Who else? Noah, yep. Yeah, there's a whole range of people, wasn't it? So uh, it's a great chapter thinking about all those people from the Old Testament. And as we move through it, the author is highlighting persevering faith as relying on God's promises, even when the final or complete fulfilment isn't experienced in our earthly life. Persevering faith is looking to the future, resting on God's word not being shaped by present circumstances. Rather, God's word is what shapes us. Persevering faith is trusting God through danger and distress, knowing he cares for his people. And as chapter 12 opens, the author is moving us, moving us from those Old Testament examples of persevering faith to encouraging his readers to likewise persevere in their faith encouraging us likewise to persevere in our faith. And in verse 2, of course, the big how-to comes. The big how-to is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. So let's take a closer look at our passage. It begins by talking about a large cloud, cloud of witnesses. It's starting with this encouragement. He's encouraging us to take heart from the large cloud of witnesses who have faithfully persevered before us to follow that example and to run the race with endurance. Now I suggest here that the author is using the Old Testament witnesses not just as examples but also in the sense of spectators cheering on the readers to finish the race. Um, Last year we had uh, the opportunity for really the first time to actually see a grandchild doing something as being in WA we didn't really get a chance to see them doing anything Um, and our um, son in Orange, his middle son was competing in a um, a sort of like a statewide cross country for Christian schools and we got to the equestrian centre and there was this huge number of people from all over the place and the arena where they were going to be finishing. Um, And as they ran, you could see everybody cheering them on, saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. And uh, our grandson was eight and running this two or three Ks or whatever it was. And even even the people that struggled, the, the kids that were at the end of the line and just gasping to get there, people were encouraging them to keep going. And then when they finished the line, everybody clapped that they'd made it. See, this large number of witnesses, the author is saying, they've run the race already. We're not alone. We're not the only ones who have to persevere in the midst of suffering and to endure in the midst of trials and tribulations. Others have done it. So we need to persevere to run the race, even when we experience suffering and opposition. How's our running going? 
I wonder if we need a little bit more training. We are to run that race, but the author says we are to disentangle ourselves. I just got a little note from my son saying, more snow, Dad. (laughs) Friends, we're to persevere by throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Here's a second call in this perseverance. We decisively commit ourselves to unhindered running of the race, unhindered persevering in the faith. How are we to keep on track in our Christian lives? By putting aside those things which slow us down in running the race, in living a faithful life. We're to throw off anything, however innocent or good in itself, that may hamper serving God and living a faithful life. Many years ago there was a a Christian writer who when he became a Christian out of a a very interesting background realised that his books was hindering him and so he got rid of all his books. Good thing books, good thing reading books. But for him he knew that they would hinder his running and so he got rid of them. And then God in his goodness allowed him to become a Christian writer and he produced a whole range of books afterwards on helping people to run the Christian race. So we've got to be pushing off those things which will hinder us. And he also calls it ridding ourselves of the sin which clings so closely. The image that always comes to my head is, you know, glad wrap. (laughs) Men are hopeless with glad wrap, aren't they? They can't do it properly and it gets all over you and uh, clings so closely and you're screaming. (laughs) But that's the image here. See, the author is recognising the power and attractiveness of sin. And faithfulness is really a two-sided lifestyle, isn't it? On the one hand, it's saying no to sin. And on the other side, saying yes to God, to godliness. In Romans it talks about the role of the Spirit being like that. We know we're led by the Spirit if we're saying no to sin and yes to godliness. So it's quite a challenge to persevere, to run this way. But see, the author's doing this so that everyone will finish. He wants everyone to reach the heavenly goal. And we'll be looking and thinking a bit more about the heavenly goal in the second half of chapter 12 next week. So we're to run the race marked out for us. And in a sense, we need to think of the race as a marathon, not a sprint. The Christian race requires resolute determination. And the goal is to complete it, not to overtake others, not to seek to defeat anyone. See, the Christian race is a race where everyone who finishes is a winner. Everybody gets that blue ribbon saying first. Rather unique, isn't it? Well, how's our Christian race progressing? It might be helpful just to ask ourselves from time to time, are we persevering by remembering the faithful saints of the past? 
mean, the, the Bible's full of them, of course. But there's also other people that we remember, don't we, in that way. Now, Christian and I, at night time, were reading through one of um, the books of Marcus Sloan, a former Archbishop of uh, Sydney. He wrote a whole heap of books, but uh, a number of them are about Christian leaders, Christian people in the past. And one in this volume they're reading is Henry Martin, uh, an English missionary to India and Iraq, Iran area, uh, one of the first to do a Persian translation and Hindu translation and so on. Amazing things he accomplished. He died, I think, at about 35. But he kept persevering even when his health was suffering. A great example to say, keep going. <laughs> Are we persevering by removing the things that entangle us or trip us up? That's hard, isn't it? There may be some things in your life that you know you need to disentangle from. Or perhaps are we clinging to aspects of life that we enjoy even though we know they're slowing us down, diverting us from the race? You can't imagine, you know, um, uh, Bolt running and having, you know, a big chain on his leg. He's never going to get to the end in the time that he does. I guess even more important, are we still playing with sin, unwilling to put it to death? That's hard too, isn't it? Because sometimes there's sin in our lives which keep bubbling up, isn't it? You know, where you try to push a balloon underwater and it keeps popping up. And, <laughs> and there's sin at times in our lives like that, isn't it? Meeting together is one way in which we need to encourage one another to keep doing that so we can persevere. Let me read again verses 1 and 2. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, if athletes are going to have any chance of winning a race, they need to fix their eyes on the finishing line, don't they? As a kid when I was trying to compete in athletics com competitions, I was always interested on who was behind me and I kept turning around like this. <laughs> of course, I never run, won a race in my life. <laughs> if we're going to win, we've got to keep our eyes on the finishing line. See, it's no different for us in the Christian race. See, the author is challenging his readers to fix their idea, eyes on the supreme encouragement for us, the supreme encouragement for faith, to rely on him, to look to Jesus Christ. So how does the book of Hebrews help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? By recalling who Jesus is, his character and sacrificial ministry. The very things the book of Hebrews has been expounding. So we're to keep our eyes on the Jesus who speaks the final word of God, chapter 1. Who is the Son of God, true God and perfect man, chapter 1, chapter 2. The Jesus who is superior to the angels and to Moses, chapter 1 and chapter 3. We're to fix our attention on the Jesus who is the way to enter God's end time rest, chapters 3 and 4. 
to fix our eyes on Jesus who fulfills all the Old Testament sacrificial system, especially the Day of Atonement, in order to cleanse our consciences with our once-for-all-time sacrifice that he made on the cross. Chapters 5 to 9, chapter 10. And of course, to fix our eyes on Jesus who is the reality built on the Old Testament's foundation which the author calls the shadow. Remember the people were tempted to drift back to the shadow, to drift back to Judaism. Don't drift back to the shadow when the reality is here. And of course at the very centre of Jesus' work is the cross. It's where he made purification for sins as chapter 1 talks about. How? By offering himself as the perfect sacrifice that turns away God's wrath to bring us forgiveness. Chapter 2, chapter 9, chapter 10. Hence it's this Jesus who ushers in the promised new covenant picked up in chapter 8 reflecting on Jeremiah 31. And the impact of the crucifixion was highlighted back in chapter 2. Remember these verses? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And so free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's a result of all of this that Jesus then sits down at the right-hand side of the throne of God because his work is finished. That's picked up in those opening verses of chapter 1 and again elsewhere. That's why Jesus is called the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's the forerunner, the pathfinder of faith. The one in whom faith reaches its perfection through his suffering. He's gone ahead of all others in faith. And that enables us to be able to follow because of what Jesus has done. And in verse 3, we see his faith shown in perseverance and sacrificial death. For Christ endures the cross, despising its shame. In the ancient world, the shame of the cross was proverbial. And so Jesus is fortified to bear up under the agony of such a death because of the joy laying before him. He sacrifices and experiences all this for the joy of bringing salvation to others. Remember these words from chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Friends, by Jesus enduring the shame and suffering of the cross, he challenges Christians to likewise persevere to the end, prepared to endure any suffering, knowing they'll be ultimately blessed by God, enjoying God's presence forever.
So in the light of the whole of the Bible, how do we now keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, giving him our concentrated attention? Well, as Paul says in Colossians 3, by making sure Christ's word dwells richly among us. That's why ever since the Reformation, Anglican churches have at their very centre the word of God being read and taught as well as it infusing the rest of the service. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? By fixing on what is his mission, seeking the lost. And of course he calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first the kingdom of God, isn't it? To put God's kingdom and his priorities first above our own. Elsewhere, we fix our eyes on Jesus by praying with thankfulness, relying on his strength that he provides through his spirit. So we are to be committed to perseverance, running the race. Then the second half of the chapter picks up running the race through the eyes of discipline. As Grace said in her introduction, not something that we normally like to think about, but that's because we tend to think of discipline only in negative terms, whereas the Bible has both positive and negative, that is, positive instruction and lovingly directed punishment. Both those things go together in biblical discipline. But God's discipline is grounded on three very important truths. The first one, God's in control because he's able to keep his promises if he's in control. Remember back in chapter 10? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope because he who is promised is is faithful, right? Because he's in control, he's faithful. That's why prayer is worthwhile, isn't it? That's why prayer actually works, because God is sovereign. Why would you want to pray to a God that wasn't sovereign? <laughs> That'd be a waste of time, wouldn't it? Waste of breath. <laughs> That's why discipline can be a comforting experience for us. So God's in control. Secondly, God loves us. That's really the import of verses 5 to 9. God loves us. He desires the best for his children. He cares how we live. I remember one one Christian leader saying one time, the thing he dreads the most is his wife saying, I don't care. But God cares and God cares all the time. And thirdly, God's goal is for our spiritual good. Let me read verse 10 again. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And this good purpose discipline has a harvest, a harvest of righteousness and peace. And that is meant to be evidenced in the ups and downs of our daily living, that harvest of righteousness and peace and peace. Friends, in the long run, our attitude to suffering to the bad times is very significant for our Christian growth, for faithful perseverance. You see, if when bad things happen, we just assume what's happening to us is unmitigated evil or endless bad luck or, well, God's obviously lost control and abandoned us, much of what Israel did in the Old Testament times which led to the exile. 
if we think that way, then we fail to grasp what God's going to be doing in and through us. So if and when we experience physical suffering or social rejection or hard times because we're a Christian, knowing God's in control won't make those experiences necessarily easier or less painful. But what it does do, how the comfort that comes to us operates, is that knowing God is working our suffering, that suffering doesn't have the last word. And so as we trust in him, then our painful experiences will under God develop spiritual maturity in us, conforming us to be more like Jesus, who was perfected through suffering. You see, God's discipline trains us for the race that is set before us. Friends, we need to be setting our minds on Jesus. Paul calls us for the same thing in Colossians 3, doesn't he? Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, not on things on earth. But it's on the Jesus who fulfills the Old Testament, who suffered and died for us. And as we concentrate on him, then we'll be able to access the resources and strength that God offers to his children. So let me finish by reading those verses again from the beginning. Therefore, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Um, to continue on with that, we are going to now stand and say the Nicene Creed to show that we, this is our faith, this is who we trust, this God. Um, this is what is important to us. So can we please stand? Hopefully the words will be up, yes? They're ready for us to say together. We believe in one God, the Father of all.